Welcome everyone to this masterclass on uh, writing for feature animation, the ins and outs with Mark Burton. I'd like to thank uh, our partners for making this masterclass possible, which is Folioscope, the Flemish audiovisual fund, L'Association des Scénaristes de l'Audiovisuel, presented here by my colleague uh, Christophe Beaujean, and the Scénariste Hilde, uh, represented by myself. For those of you who are not familiar with ASA or our sister, we are the sister organization, uh, the Scénariste Hilde, I'd like to say a few words on uh, the Gildes. Uh, we defend the interests of all screenwriters, whether they write for animation, documentaries, features, or uh, television. And we also strive for correct collection and distribution of copyrights, and do that by negotiating with the government funding agencies and collection societies. Next to masterclasses like this one, we also organize workshops, uh, pitching sessions, and uh, speed dates. And if you like more information on ASA or the Senaristo Hilde, you can always come talk to us during the break, which should be around for or after this masterclass. And now it's about time to hear from uh, our guest, Mark Burton. Christophe? Yes, we were delighted to have Mark Burton uh, coming for the ASA. I think it was eight years ago, something like that. And we are even more delighted to organize with the Senaristo Hilde this event, uh, this masterclass. So I won't try to sum up the uh, experience of Mark Burton because he's been writing for a very different kind of uh, formats. They're including TV, uh, cinema, of course, animated cinema, which will be the subject of this masterclass, but also radio, television, and for uh, comedians. So uh, this masterclass is about the films in animation and the ins and outs. And uh, we can sum up like uh, Madagascar, uh, of course, Shaun the Sheep, and also uh, Mark if, uh, has written for uh, uh, Wallace and Gromit, The Were Rabbits Curse. So welcome uh, Mark Burton, and I ask you a big applause for him. Thank you, guys. Not mine. Thank, you guys. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much indeed. I was here eight years ago. I'm going to probably say the same things. So if you, if you were here then, I hope you've forgotten them all. Um, but um, a few things just to get out of the way. Sorry about Brexit. <laughs> it, it's not my fault. But, um, you know, I've, I've come here to Brussels. It's great. I don't know if I can get home again, to be honest with you. But uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, I want to say also thank you. Thank you to, to, thank you to Belgium. Thank you for Anima. Um, thank you for Tintin. Thank you for uh, a town called Panic. Thank you for the Smurfs. Yeah, thank you for the Smurfs as well, that's great. So, um, what I'm going to be talking about today is writing for feature animation, the ins and outs. Um, feature animation I'm going to be talking about, a lot of the things I'm going to say will apply to other things that you're doing, um, be they you know short things or um, half hours or TV or whatever, but I am talking specifically about feature animation. I should say straight away uh, that I'm not going to give you some magic formula. Uh, because there isn't one, um, or if there is one, no one's given it to me. So um, we're gonna, we, you know. So what I'm going to tell you is really a bit about my process, um, and it's a process. It's not the process. There's no, there's no way you have to write or have to do these things. It's just a question of what you think uh, works for you. So, um, you know, hopefully I can give you some inspiration, some tips, and some advice for you to find your own process, uh, but this is very much based on my experience working 
for studios in the UK and in Hollywood over the last 20 years. So let's get cracking. So uh, that's all pretty clear, I think, what we're going to be talking about. So you're either thinking one of two things. You're either thinking, what's that got to do with writing? Uh, or do anima do refunds? I don't know. But all will become clear because one of the, uh, one of the first rules of storytelling is be ahead of your audience. So um, hopefully all will become clear. But before we, um, we get into some of the nitty gritty of what's up there, um, I'm going to uh, show you a short film, which I think sums up the writing process. Hopefully you've all, you've all been there. You've all been there. We're all in this room. We all know that pain. So um, in fact, can I ask, can you put your hand up if you are a professional writer or, or animator in the business? That's great. Can you put your hand up if you're a student or an aspiring writer? And um, put your hand up if you just like putting your hand up. It's just a fun thing to do. Uh, no, that's important to know, uh, to know who's here. Um, so what we're going to do is I'm going to launch into a lecture now um, about uh, some of the things that, uh, and the methods that I use and the way I think. And then we're going to have a break. And then um, we're going to watch a long extract from um, an Arban movie. Uh, and then we're going to talk about it. So, uh, and I'm going to ask you some questions. So you have to listen. So the idea. It all starts with an idea, um, a fragile little thing like that. Um, now, the chicken thing is quite interesting because Nick Park once told me that the first idea he had for Chicken Run was a whisk. He had this image of a whisk coming through the ground. And he started to ask himself, what's that whisk coming through the ground? Why is it there? Maybe someone's trying to escape or trying to get out of a tunnel. Who would they be? And he started to form the whole idea of what became Chicken Run. Um, which I thought was fantastic, but when I uh, asked him this recently, he said he denied that he ever said that, but uh, I like to think he did. And, um, and that's a question about where ideas come from. Um, because another thing about Nick Park is he's from the north of England, and his father um, was always making things in his shed. And in fact, he made a whole caravan. Does that remind you of anyone? So I think there's an interesting question there about where do ideas come from? And... Um, you know, the thing I'm going to say to you, and I like to say to people about being a writer and about having ideas, is you've got to live a life. You can't hide away in a garret trying to think up ideas. You've got to live a life. You've got to get engaged, get involved. You've got to, uh, you know, be curious, read, watch films, but also, you know, fall in love, be heartbroken, all those things. Because there's a saying, and I don't know if you have it here in Belgium, which is, write what you know. Write what you know. But that's not a literal thing. That's the... Uh, method of applying your own life experience to your creativity. So Nick Park didn't literally create his dad and do a memoir to his dad. He created Wallace, which was something new and different, um, but it had elements of his father and his upbringing in it. So inspiration is all very well, but you know what? You need to look, sometimes work a little bit harder, particularly if you're a working writer. Um, and take an example from the studios. I've worked in this system. For them, having an idea is an industrial process. You know, they spend a lot of time buying up plays, books, looking for folk tales, myths, whatever. Uh, they're hoovering up everything they can. But even then, they still sometimes, they call it intellectual property, by the way. I don't know if you know that phrase, IP, intellectual property. It's kind of the currency of feature animation. But um, sometimes even they just need new ideas, original ideas. So what they used to do was, every now and then when I was uh, working at uh, DreamWorks, or every few months, we'd have a thing called a round table. And uh, we would all basically be invited, lots of writers, we'd be invited to the round table. And when we arrived there, there would be, on, on one wall would be sort of pictures of, uh, 
an environment. On another wall might be pictures of animals, different kinds of animals. On another wall, there would be lots of classic films, stills from classic films. And we would throw around ideas. And what often happened is it became a kind of Rubik's Cube, where you would combine an animal with an environment and a classic film, which sounds quite stupid. But then let me pitch you some of the ideas that are based around that template. Um, you have to name the film. So um, the film is Hamlet with lions in Africa. Can you name that film? Thank you very much. Okay, The Magnificent Seven with insects in uh, American suburbia, Bugs Life. And then you've got Spartacus with insects in American suburbia. Ants, exactly. So I could go on. I mean, it's, it's Madagascar is kind of city slickers with, um, uh, with uh, zoo animals uh, in um, Madagascar, funnily enough. And uh, when we were creating that project, I wanted to call it Wild Things. I thought it was a great name, Wild Things. I remember saying to Jeffrey Katzenberg, head of the studio, uh, Jeffrey, I think we should call it Wild Things. I think that's a really great title. And he said, yeah, okay, Madagascar it is. That's great. So, uh, so that's not the only way of doing it. Pixar don't play that game, by the way. You don't have to do it that way. What Pixar do, they're fantastic at coming up with ideas, but their ideas are often either extraordinary worlds or they're ordinary worlds looked at in an extraordinary way. Uh, I mean, you can think of different examples of that, whether it's Monsters, Inc., or Toy Story. So there's lots of different ways of coming up with ideas. Some don't make it, like <laughs> there's one idea at DreamWorks, which was the guns of Navarone with elephants, which that one didn't make it. So, Okay, most of the ideas that the studio have are what we call high concept. I don't know if you know this phrase, high concept. Uh, and that means that they are, you can really pitch them in one line. They're very pitchable in one line. So what if toys had their own life and could talk? You know, what if uh, the monsters under your bed were real and, and lived in their own world? You know, a fractured fairy tale about a lonely ogre. So I should make a point, actually, particularly at an animation festival like this, that this is not the only way of doing animation. There's lots of great animation, which is more low concept. You know, there's, there's things like uh, Max and Mary, um, Mary and Max, and, uh, you know, there's all sorts of stuff going on. There's My Life as a Courgette and, and, and many other wonderful things. But even some of the, what you might call art house, even Miyazaki, uh, maybe um, Wes Anderson, even some of those films are quite high concept in, um, in their conception. But for the studios, it's a different thing. For the studios, it's about coming up with this really strong idea, which they can then you know, commercialize, um, an, an idea that's going to get people to, to come to the cinema, to want to see that. When you hear that one idea, and it happens to you, I'm sure, somebody says to you a good idea, you go, I want to go and see that movie. Somebody said to me once in a corridor at DreamWorks, hey, Mark, come here. Kung Fu Panda. And I went, yeah, I'll go and see that. That sounds great. And they, and they made Kung Fu Panda. So um, it wasn't that easy. But, uh, so high concept uh, is a, a useful thing. Um, and um, I think, um, you know, I should probably mention this point that even as I say these things, the commercial world is changing, as you know. I mean, you know all about the fangs. Facebook, Apple, you know, um, Amazon, Netflix, Google. Uh, they're, all, they're all now trying to get into the content business in a big way. Obviously, Netflix and Amazon Prime and so on. And in the past, if you were thinking about it, if you were making a big movie, like a, an animated movie, you've got you to recoup it. So for Disney, if they make a film that's $200 million, they've got to make $600 million to break even on that film. Just to break even, just so everyone gets paid, never mind making a profit on it. But I think for the fangs, they've got a different take, which is they want to get noticed. They want to win Oscars and they want to win awards. So that's interesting because it's going to be a slightly different model. But I think it's the same thing, which is big, strong ideas are the ones that everyone's looking for. All right, so let's talk about your idea. 
When you have an idea, you should ask yourself some tough questions. Is this idea really good enough? Has it been done before? Am I doing it in a fresh way? What makes it disruptive, uh, a new angle, a new world, or, or a new way of doing, uh, you know, looking at things? Um, and, I'm, and I think a friend of mine actually, he used this phrase I love, test to destruction. You have to test your idea to destruction, and it will make it stronger for that. So let's, let's imagine, for example, you have an idea, which is, um, I've got an idea, it's great, it's great. It's, um, it's a fox and a rabbit, and they live in a wood, and there's... Um, they're being pursued, they have to work together because they're being pursued by an evil hunter. That's, that's a good idea, it's not bad. Let's, let's knock it around a bit. Hey, wait a minute, what about if that fox and the rabbit didn't live in a wood, they lived in a kind of city of animals, a city of animals. It's like a kind of New York, but with animals in. And what if the, what if the, the rabbit was actually a cop, and what if the, the fox was a con man, and the evil villain was a sheep who's trying to get rid of predators? Now you've got a billion dollar movie. What is that movie? Exactly. So. You've got an idea, you think it's strong enough, you've tested it to destruction, you know, you haven't been afraid to put it to one side, maybe think of another idea. You've got to find a theme for it, find a theme. A lot of uh, feature animations, good feature animations have a strong theme. So, let me just pitch you a theme. With great power comes great responsibility. What's that film? You know, that's what amazes me about that, that theme is so strong, you can name the film from the theme. And even, uh, you know, recently, I don't know if you guys have seen Spider-Verse yet, have you? Which is great, by the way. Uh, that theme still applies, uh, I think, to that movie. Um, it's, you know, it's still a very, a very profound theme. So let's talk about themes a little bit, because they're a little bit misunderstood, I think, themes. Um, you know, a strong theme, it's like the DNA of your story. It's at the heart of your story. It's a dilithium crystal, and what it does is it drives the template of the story, and the characters, uh, and um, it tells you, uh, you know, where the story needs to go. So it has a very important role. And I think people often misunderstand what they mean by a theme, in my opinion. People say, you know, my, I'm doing a thing and the themes like alienation and betrayal and like jealousy and stuff. And it's like, that's not a theme, that's subject areas. A theme is you posit a statement that you can either agree or disagree with. And they're often, they're often childishly simple. Beauty lies within, you know, uh, be careful what you wish for. Life is a journey, not a destination. They're like things that turn up on a desk calendar and they sound almost simplistic, but actually when you extrapolate from them, uh, they, become very they can be very profound and they can be very nuanced. So don't be fooled by a, a simple theme. Uh, it's good to think what that could be. And let me throw some examples at you. Um, Zootopia, you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. That's what I think it really is basically saying. Despicable Me, there's good in everyone if you go looking for it. I think that's kind of what the theme of that is. And then Finding Nemo, it's better to learn how to deal with the world than try and hide away from the world. So, and obviously you can couch these themes in different ways, but that's, you know, there's a strong thematic idea in there and the story is built around that idea. So you need to find your theme, you need to know what your theme is. And as you're working and developing your story, you'll find that theme, you know, other themes proliferate and everything. You have to ask yourself hard questions about, is that where the story is going? Is that the right place? Do we need to change the theme? Is that the right theme? So it, I think it's a very important and crucial part of building a profound story. Right, so you've got your theme and your idea. <laughs> now it's time to, uh, to map your world. So I think you need to, to dig in, this is a very important thing, particularly I think a lot of inexperienced writers don't do, is spend enough time, uh, never mind what your story is for the minute, just think about the world the story is set in. 
You might be coming up with characters and scenes and backstory and so on, but never even get in the movie or get in your script. But the point is you need to know it. You need to know that world um, and you need to explore it. Um, you have to deliver on the idea that we call the promise of the premise. The promise of the premise. You've had this great idea, which is, you know, uh, what if toys could talk and had their own lives? You've got to deliver on that premise. So you start to think about the world, the rules, the hierarchy, uh, and then maybe you need to do some research. So, for example, in that research, you know, it might be odd. How can you research Monsters, Inc.? I mean, they, you know, it's all set in a weird monster world, but you can because there's a frame of reference for all these things. You know, Monsters, Inc. is like a, a society, um, and there's, you know, uh, people in it that are kind of like Top Gun pilots that do the scaring, that they're great, they're, they're kind of, you know, the heroes of this world and so on. So there's a kind of value system attached to it. Um, very interesting bit of research on uh, Frozen, which is where... Um, uh, the, um, they decided, because they knew it was going to become a, uh, quite late on actually, but it was going to become a, uh, a sister, a story about sister, you know, sisters, about that sibling relationship. They had a sister conference at Disney where they got everyone together and said, you know, talk about your experience of, of being sisters. So that's the kind of research you're talking about. So um, let's go back to this idea of the grand metaphor for your idea, particularly if your idea is set in a kind of fantasy world. You know, I, I keep using this phrase like a grand metaphor, but what I mean by that is, like, what's it actually like? So, like, in Zootopia, even though it was an animal world, I think you'd say that was really a, um, you know, it was New York, wasn't it, really? But with animals in, and that's where your kind of, your comic drop is, as it were, your story drop, which we'll talk about later. But um, uh, there's an interesting phrase, actually, called scene affaire, scene affaire. In, um, in France, it's a literary term. And in the United States, it's a legal term, which is very interesting about those two cultures. I know this because I got involved in, uh, well, we all did, but everyone at DreamWorks got involved in a court case about Madagascar. This happens all the time, by the way. Whenever you make anything, if you're in the big studio, somebody else in the world claims that you've stolen it, even if they've never met you or anything. Uh, and somebody claimed that we had um, you know, copied a few, uh, some storybook or something that they'd done, which was about a zoo. And the argument by the lawyer was, that's seen a fair, because when you have a zoo, you have... Zoo animals, zebras and lions, you have zookeepers. These things all come with the idea of having a zoo. And so you can use scene affair when you're designing your world because you kind of go, okay, let's talk about animals living in a city. And then you start thinking, well, a city would have a police force. So maybe there's an animal police force. Uh, you know, they might have, you know, there would be speakeasies and bars and so on. What would they be? You can see that as well in things like Bugs Life and, and Ants where they have, you know, downtown bars and so on. So if you know what your kind of grand metaphor is, then it can help you design your world um, and you can start to build out from it. Here's another way of looking at it. This is uh, Michael Arndt. He's a very, very talented uh, writer. He wrote Toy Story 3, amongst other things. And he, he describes the process of trying to, you know, create a template for your story, get started, uh, is like trying to find a mountain before you can climb a mountain. You have to find the right mountain, that's how hard it is, never mind, never mind climbing it. By the way, I recommend Michael Arntz, uh, he's, he's done a, a number of lectures and things that are online where he talks about starting, how to start a movie and, and talks about endings and things, they're very interesting. All right, characters. So obviously we could talk all day about characters, so I haven't got time to do that, you'll be relieved to know. But um, you, you start to create characters for your world. And I think, uh, you know, obviously some ideas, if you have an idea for Shrek, it comes with a built-in character. You know, it's an ogre that you know, lives on his own and everything, and um, it's green or whatever. But that doesn't mean you have to start building out your characters. And this is where I think uh, the theme and the idea and the template that you're trying to create become... Uh, 
very paramount because you don't you need to create a kind of uh, a kind of satellite system of characters. That's why I've chosen that image because I often do that. Actually, sometimes when I'm trying to work on a a story and build it from the ground up, you know, I'll do a little diagram of how I think the characters interact. Who's the most important set of characters? Who's kind of the earth, if you like? And what are the people going around them? And how do they go around them? What are their relationships? So that you know the importance of your characters and where they should sit in your story. Um, and uh, those characters as well, if you know, in a, if things aren't always perfect, but in a perfect world, they kind of reflect the theme. They're based on the theme. Let me give you a little example of that. Um, so, for example, going back to Spider-Verse, which is very interesting um, in many ways, but they, um, there's a character there, Miles, the, the central character, uh, and he's, uh, in the story, torn between two conflicting role models. Uh, his dad, who's a bit of a stiff, he's called Jefferson, he's a cop, um, and then his cool Uncle Aaron, who's really cool and kind of lives on the streets a little bit. And um, so the theme tells us, with great power comes great responsibility. So uh, that almost tells you what the story has to be, which is Miles is, is you know, dealing with this issue. He's got these powers. And he starts off by going to Uncle Aaron's side of things, because that's power without responsibility, and it seems more fun, to be honest with you. It seems great. And then throughout the story, it's all about how he comes to realize that his father is the correct role model because he has power with responsibility. And it's a very moving moment when he reaches that uh, sort of epiphany. Um, so you can see that in that little tiny example, um, that the theme is driving the characters and driving the narrative and the story and creating a template for it. So um, that's why I think it's, you know, it's a very important thing to think about it that way. Um, we often have this little thing where we sometimes think about the hero and the villain. Most feature animations have a hero and a villain of some kind. Uh, I mean, what's interesting about Despicable Me is they, they made the villain a hero. Um, but he was kind of a hero in a sense. He was going to come, but we were always on his side. But in a kind of more conventional sense, you have your, uh, you have your hero and you have your villain. And the, the villain is often like what you might call the dark shadow of the hero. The villain is often reflecting the flaws, the deep-rooted flaws of the hero. And that's how you build your villain, to almost be the opposite, almost like the dark mirror of the, of the hero. Um, and so the um, hero has to not just physically confront, but has to actually sort of morally confront those flaws that are reflected back. It can be quite a powerful idea. But what's important is that um, characters control the plot, not the other way around. If, your plot, if you're moving your plot around and your characters are sort of trotting behind, then your characters aren't strong enough. They need to create a set of characters and they need to do what they need to do. And you need to design them strong enough that they can control the plot, not the other way around. I'll give you one thing that we talk about quite a lot. It's quite a useful little hack. I'll, I'll be giving a few little hacks during the course of this. We, we often do this. It's uh, quite hard. <laughs> but we do it anyway. Um, so you've got a character that's not quite working or whatever, and you ask yourself three questions about that character. This is about deep character. What do they say they want? You might know this, by the way. I'm sorry if you do. But what do they say they want is question one. What do they really want is question two. And question three is what do they need? What do they actually need as characters? And that defines their arc. So you know about character arcs, don't you? I'm assuming you all know about character arcs. Um, so let's take an example of Shrek. So what does he say he wants? He wants to be left alone. Uh, what, does he, um, what does he actually want? Well, he wants to be loved, but he thinks he's unlovable because he's an ogre. What does he need? He needs to learn that in order to be loved, he has to love someone back. He has to engage in the world. So that character has got that depth, uh, and it's in a quite a simple way. So you've been working up for a while on uh, 
on your idea, your treatment, you may have got maybe a synopsis. We'll talk about the different steps in a minute. But um, what often happens to me when I'm working with studios is they'll come to me and say, Mark, um, can you just give us a few pages on this idea you have? Just a few pages, not very much. Like, they don't understand how hard that is. It's like, I, know, I wonder if anybody ever said to Einstein, Albert, can you just give us one of your little theories, your little formulas? You know, nothing, not, not, not too big, just, just a little formula that can, that can sit on a blackboard. That's all we're looking for. It's like, the point is that being simple is really complicated. And that's at the heart and soul of what you'll be doing at this part of the process, is you're going to be, this is always a danger, particularly if you're inexperienced, that you overcomplicate it, you add things on, because you're trying to find solutions, you add, 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 add. No, no, you need to strip back, you need to find, you look, you look at the stories that probably you love, they're so simple, there's such an elegant architecture to them, but finding that architecture is very, very difficult and very hard, and that's what you're going to spend your time doing. Uh, and watch out for black holes, because that's what you're about to go into, and it's what we call... Development hell. I don't know if you guys have been in development hell. I'm sure you have. It's a terrible place to be. Um, it can go on for years. Uh, nothing seems to be happening. Uh, you're doing, uh, you've got what we call documentitis. You're producing endless documents. You're sitting in rooms of people. Everyone's scratching their head. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's a quite a normal process. And what happens is that every idea on day one, it's like, this is the best idea, it's so easy. I, I, my co-writer co used to say, it's a programmer. It's a programmer, it'll write itself. And then, of course, it doesn't write itself. Um, it's actually, they're all as hard as each other, and you have to really work hard um, to make any story 85 minutes long. It's a never-ending battle, because there is, um, you know, inevitably, there are infinite possibilities for how that story can develop, even with your template and your theme. So don't be afraid of that process, embrace that process. Embrace it, because that's, you know, even if you think you're not getting anywhere, you are. You probably are getting anywhere. I'll give you an example. When I was at DreamWorks, I used to sort of go to parties and things. This is a while back. People would say, they'd say, oh, what are you working on? they say, oh my God, man. Jesus, I'm working on this piece of shit. I, I, they should, we've been working on it for years, it's rubbish. We should get rid of it. I don't know why we're still doing it, honestly. It's just, it just really, I don't know, we've been, oh God, it's just sucking up time and energy and money. That was called Shrek. That was Shrek. I'm telling you, that was a dog of a, of a, um, of a project for, for years at DreamWorks before it kind of found itself. And there's a great saying that I often use to comfort myself in the darkest hour, which is, success grows in the garden of failure. So, uh, good theme of something, actually. But, um, you know, um, that's, that's what you need to, to be aware of. Um, can I just tell you one um, war story from Hollywood about, about development hell, because it's one of my favorite ones. I think I have told it before in Belgium, but I'll tell it again. Um, so many years ago, I was working uh, with a co-writer for Universal Studios, and they wanted to develop um, a book by Richard Matheson called The Incredible Shrinking Man. So Eddie Murphy had the idea of doing it as a comedy, which is a good idea. So they optioned the book. And Eddie got his brother to write the first set, draft and a set, which is what you get in the Hollywood deal, draft and a set, draft and a set of revisions. He wrote it. He got fired. So they brought some other guys in called Gans and Mandel. They were really good writers. They were, they'd written Parenthood. They were not cheap. They did a draft and a set. They got fired. So me and my mate Billy, we stepped up. We did our draft and a set. Guess what? We got fired. Then the, after us, I think there was another two sets of writers. They all got fired as well. Then I uh, forgot all about that project, and then uh, sometime later, there's a thing that my agent 
in the States has, which is called the Open Writers Assignment List. It was a list of jobs that you could go up for if you were a writer in, a, in, the, in the Hollywood. And lo and behold, the Incredible Shrinking Man had turned up on that list. Incredible Shrinking Man looking for writers. And then it had a producer's note, want to lose shrinking element. So after all that time, all that money, they had an incredible man. That's all they had. And that sums up development hell, which is, you, you know, you can spin, spin on your axis. Uh, I mean, now the American studios can afford to do that uh, more than we can, that's for sure. Um, but, you know, uh, you know, what will happen is that um, you have to stick at it. There's a great thing that Pixar say, uh, which is stick to the template. When you're in trouble, when you, kind of, when you kind of get roadblocks and bumps and you start to lose sight of it, stick to the template. What does that mean? I think it means, going back to what I was talking about, theme and idea and genre, the grand metaphor, those kind of things, the promise of the premise, that's your template. And you, have we, somewhere, we've left, you know, we've, somewhere we've gone away from that. Like, I, to me, I would have gone, I would have sat in that meeting and said, this incredible man project we're working on, you know, wasn't it originally a shrinking man? Wasn't that the whole point? Shouldn't we go back to the shrinking thing, not lose the shrinking element? So that can happen in development hell, which uh, one day you do get out of, and it is all worth it. And what gets you out of it is, um, uh, well, you know, money, <laughs> time, effort, but also other people. Other people are very important. Now, um, feature animation, all animation really, is a collaborative experience, unlike other forms of writing. I like that about it. I mean, it can be difficult sometimes when people are commenting on your script, telling you how shit it is, which happens most of the time. But it's a great thing to have other people to, to, to work with and bounce off. And um, the Americans have this phrase. They, 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 they use the phrase, the room. I don't know if you use it over here. When they say the room, they don't mean a space in a building. They mean a creative entity. So they talk about, let's get you guys, let's get the room going. Let's get a room. A room means a bunch of writers in a room together. That's how all their box sets are made. All the UK, you know, all the US TV and sitcoms, they get a room together of people in it. Um, that's something that we do at Ardman to a certain extent. And we've got the idea, uh, you know, as experience builds up. I mean, obviously, Pixar have a thing that they call the Brains Trust, where it's Pete Doctor and um, Andrew Stanton, Brad Bird. Uh, they sort of, you know, they're, they're all kind of in part of that. Um, as you say, yeah, John Lasseter was, was part of that, but he's a bit toxic at the moment. But, um, so they use that phrase, the room, it's very interesting, and it doesn't necessarily just mean other writers, it can also mean storyboard people, uh, studio people, well it will mean studio people, uh, it might mean you know, uh, development executives, script editors, and so on. Um, now the perfect way to, um, for a room to work, in my opinion, is that you are in charge. I, I love rooms where I'm in charge. I don't mind going into a room of people and, and they're all contributing great ideas to my script. I don't mind that at all. Once I worked on one project, and they said, you know what, there's, um, we can get some Simpsons writers to punch up. Punch up is this phrase we use, which means to add humor, add jokes. It's actually a kind of part of the process. We can use the Simpsons writers to punch up your script mark. I was like, fine, as long as I can choose which ones go in. So they did, and literally, down the pipe, back in the day, out of the facts came 10 pages of fantastic jokes from the Simpsons writers. Thank you very much. My name's at the end of that script, so that was great. So don't be afraid of collaboration. Where collaboration breaks down is when you're not in control, unfortunately, and that does happen a lot. People are telling you what you've got to do. Um, then it gets more tricky. Um, and that, we can maybe talk about that a bit later, about how to deal with notes. But, uh, but I'm generally very pro-collaboration. All right, so you've done your endless documents. You've done your, well, you've probably done, I guess, a, a beat outline. 
you all know what a beat outline is. You know what beats are, don't you? There's beats you can use in a different way. There's beats like the story points, but a beat in a scene can be literally like a musical beat. It's like how a scene moves, how you move through a scene. So beats, very musical image. Uh, step outline is another phrase you can be used. It doesn't really matter. What it is is documents, that's the point. Uh, and it's the content that counts. It doesn't matter how you do it. You can pitch it, and we'll talk a bit, a bit about pitching as well. Um, but the main thing is that you've worked hard on your story, you've come through development hell, and there's that great moment when they say, Mark, we want you to write the pages. Another American phrase, the pages. They use this phrase. They, mean, they don't just mean like bits of paper, they mean the pages, the actual words, the actual thing itself. We want it. Where are the pages? You often get that phone call. Where are the pages? Uh, and I often start with, uh, I hate this part of the process, by the way. I really hate this part of the process, um, which is writing, I suppose. But um, I, I often end up with a thing called a scriptment. A scri it's not a, this is not a technical name, it's my own name. A scriptment is like where you, you have done so many treatments, you put dialogue in there and some jokes, and it's sort of halfway between a script and um, a treatment. And so you, 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 you kind of, that's a good sort of starting point to get on with it. Um, but... You know, you have to kind of, you have to get, get to work and, and get doing it. Now, people often say to me, uh, civilians, where they say, what's it, what's it like being a writer? What's it like? I say, well, I'm trying to think of a, a, a metaphor. Well, you know, I like to go swimming. And um, it's a bit like that sometimes. You know, uh, the other week I went swimming and I didn't want to go. So I avoided it. I had some coffee and I paced up and down. Eventually, I got my swimming trunks and I went down to the pool. I didn't want to get in the water because the water is cold. Uh, I got in the water, and it was like I had to do lots of lengths, and that was hard work. I didn't want to do that either, but I went up and down and got those lengths done, and that's a bit like swimming. Uh, it's a bit like writing. Uh, but then about um, towards the back end of that swim, I inhaled a load of water by accident, and I started choking. And it was really bad. Um, the whole swimming pool went quiet because I was <laughs> trying to find my breath. Everybody was like this. Even the lifeguards were like this. And I thought, that's what writing's really like. That's what writing's like, is that no one can help you. You have to just get in there and do it yourself, you know, at some point, and you have to kind of work on your craft. So that script's still waiting. Uh, you've had 15 cups of coffee. Uh, you've kind of checked the news. Come on, you've got to start writing. Well, maybe you need a little bit of help, because there's plenty of people that will offer you help. Let's talk about these guys. Have you, have you read a lot of books, you people? I don't know if you read books, Hollywood books, how to, how to make a fortune. Write a Hollywood book, obviously, that's the answer. But um, now look, I'm, not, I'm sort of semi-cynical about these things. I've read them as well. I've been on some of those courses. Um, but yeah, so look, Sid Phil, that's the original one. Um, still very good, you know, very basic, you know, about the architecture of a script. Robert McKee. Robert McKee is uh, amazing. He's an actor and he, he does an amazing presentation. I don't know if you've ever done it. And he's very kind of gets into very granular way into writing. He himself wrote a few scripts for Mrs. Columbo, a, a long forgotten US TV series. So, because you, you, you can uh, write books doesn't mean you can necessarily write, write films. But um, there's that's those two. Then there's um, Christopher Vogler. Christopher Vogler, um, so a guy called Joseph Campbell wrote a book in the 50s called um, Hero of a Thousand Faces. And uh, it was all about the universal experience of myth. And Christopher Vogler thought, oh, I'll use that book to make this book, and I'll make loads of money. Um, and uh, poor Joseph Campbell didn't. But even so, it's a very interesting book. It's got lots of phrases and things in it, like threshold guardians and so on, that we do sometimes use. Save the Cat, another good one. Blake Schneider, he was a guy who made his living doing spec scripts, which I'll talk about a bit later. Um, 
And this is a very practical one. I think it's a good one to start with. It's kind of a bit annoying in some ways. It's a bit like sort of writing for dummies. But it's got some good stuff in it. So um, John Truby, I don't really know, to be honest with you. Um, but uh, everyone says, you know, again, he's got some good things to say. But there is one very clever uh, young Greek guy that I'd recommend. He's called Aristotle. Uh, and he wrote a book called Poetics, uh, which was the first book ever of dramatic theory. He, didn't, uh, he wasn't smart enough to copyright it and do tours and get paid for it. But um, he, he had a think about drama and stuff. Uh, he sort of had a sort of musical take on it and a kind of moral take on it. But he kind of thought, well, the thing about um, stories is they have, um, they have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that was kind of quite an important thing that he said, I think. Um, and um, that brings me on to talking about what we have to talk about, which is structure. Because all those books offer different kinds of structures uh, if you're working on a film script. Um, and they've all got useful things to say. I don't think any of them has the answer, but uh, there's, you know, there's, they're all good. I don't think you can learn writing from a book or from a masterclass. I was going to tell you that at the end, but anyway. Um, but, you know... The thing about structure is, I look at it like a house, as a metaphor I like to use, is um, a house has four walls and a roof. Four walls and a roof, that's what a house has, basically. That's if, you, if you've gone to house studies and you know that it has four walls and a roof, you've, uh, you've learned a lot of stuff about houses. And then there's all sorts of different houses that you can build that have four walls and a roof. You can have a wide variety of houses. Um, Uh-oh. Uh, okay, not all houses have four walls and a roof, I admit, okay? But let's be honest, um, most of us live in houses, not igloos. Uh, so I think it's fair to say that on the whole, um, most feature, film, feature animation films are conventionally structured. They don't have to be. You know, there's plenty of uh, good films that aren't, but I think on the whole they are. So let's come back to that conversation around structure. Four walls and a roof. What are the four walls and a roof? of a screenplay, of a, of a feature animation screenplay. All right, well, let me, let's see if we can work it out together. So how many acts are there in a story? How many acts? Thank you. Three acts, well done. Uh, okay, so, uh, and, and three acts is a, a beginning, middle, and end. Uh, and so um, act one, I think, has a beginning, middle, and end too. Uh, act one has a beginning, middle, and end. The end of, at the end of the uh, act one, after the beginning, middle, and end of Act 1, you've set up the premise, you've probably set up most of your main characters, and you've set up the stakes and the jeopardy, and you've set your hero off on some, some kind of journey. So then you get to Act 2. Um, act 2, the first half and the second half. We, we often, there's a rule of, this is a rule of thumb. This is like, almost like being a stonemason, just talking about, you know, every day, working at stone, just simple crafts. So this is not very scientific, but you look at a second act, we often talk about it in two halves. 2A and 2B is, is a kind of shorthand. Why do we do that? Because 2A is generally your characters are up and running, they're in the world, uh, in, you know, in the extraordinary world, if you like, whatever it is in your story. Um, and that's kind of the, what, what Blake Snyder calls the fun and games. It's when you enjoy the promise of the premise. And that goes along to the beginning, the middle, and end for that. And then you get to a point where the story can't just carry on like that because it's going to get boring. Um, so you need some kind of midpoint, some kind of big reversal, some kind of 180 turn in the story, which means that the second half of the film is much, uh, you know, much uh, different from the first half of the film. Then, 2B, you get a beginning, middle, and end, but at the end of 2B, 
that's what you might call the dark night of the soul. That's when your central character or characters have reached this uh, kind of crisis, and it's about whether or not the demons without and within will destroy them, and whether they can overcome that and reach some kind of epiphany. That takes you into Act 3, which surprisingly has a beginning, middle, and end, ending with a big, a sort of big climactic thing, and then a resolution. Um, now, when you add all those together, that's 12. 12 sequences, chapters, phases, whatever you want to call it. I know it sounds really sort of like simplistic almost, but it's not. It's, it, that's really hard to think of a story in that way. Try it. If you're working on a feature animation script and you haven't applied that, think about it in those terms. That shape is such a useful shape to go, okay, so there's kind of three chapters in Act 1, then there's kind of six chapters in Act 2, and there's three chapters in Act 3, and that's very much a rule of thumb. That's something I learned from working at DreamWorks, which is a, which is a system that we kind of use there informally. Uh, and often when you were pitching a story, you'd do it with 12 images, or you'd try and do it with 12 images to try and convey where the story went. It wasn't, it's not a science, but it's not a science. This is a rule of thumb. This is people cutting wood, cutting stone, just kind of how you might make it work. Um, so that's basically um, how I approach structure, which seems very, very simplistic, but I can assure you it's not. Um, it's, it's like a, a very useful roadmap. The difference between being a screenwriter and being a house builder is a house builder, you're allowed to build a house. You can see what you're doing. You can, you, whereas a screenwriter, when you're creating a story, it's this weird thing. It's like building a house with a blindfold on because you build it and then you show it to people and they go, that's a shit house. And, the, and it, oh, really? I thought, oh. And it, I don't know why it's so hard, but it is. We all know this as writers. We all know how hard it is to create a story that, you know, you think it works, but for other people it doesn't work. So. That's something that, could, that may, may well help you. Um, by the way, some of this stuff does kind of apply to half hours and possibly even to shorts, because a three-act structure is quite useful. It's still a beginning, middle, and end. Um, but how it applies is obviously a big conversation in itself, so I wouldn't think it, you know, get too stuck into that. Okay, what you might call hacks, uh, to use a modish phrase. Um, again, these are rules of thumb. Uh, when, when I'm working with other writers and we have a common language, um, these are things that we might talk about if we get stuck, if we can hit a roadblock or a bump or something or whatever. Some of these you might know, by the way. Um, have you heard of the moral premise? So the moral premise, um, I don't know the details about it, but it very simply put is orphan, wanderer, warrior, martyr. So what does that mean, you're thinking? Okay, so an orphan, your hero is an orphan at the beginning of the story, meaning they're missing something. They need to find something. And then they set off on their journey and they become a wanderer. They don't know yet they're, they're, they're Michael Arndt trying to find the mountain. And then they get to the, mid of the middle of the story, the midpoint. It's not literally the middle of the story, but it's the middle of the storytelling. And they now know what the stakes are and what they have to do. And that makes them a warrior. So in the second half of the story, they get proactive. And then things go, you know, get tough for them and they have to make a sacrifice. And that's why they're martyrs. At the very end, your character makes a sacrifice. And in fact, what they're letting go of is their old self because your characters are different at the end from what they are at the beginning. Otherwise, you've got a big problem with your film. So orphan, wanderer, warrior, martyr. It's quite a useful little thing. I don't know who came up with that. Some clever person somewhere. It's quite a useful hack in terms of looking at your... If somebody's saying to you, I don't know, they use this phrase, you know, lots of Hollywood phrases that I'm going to show you later. But like they'll say, you know, there's a, yeah, yeah. Your script is lacking narrative traction. It's, it's, I'm just getting bored reading it, is what they're saying. And it's like, okay, well, maybe, are we clear about what the characters, what mode the, the central character is in, the protagonist is in? 
Are they, you know, which part of the story? And okay, well, we're in the second half of the story, but they're still wandering. They're still not quite sure. So it's confusing, and, 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 and there's a kind of, we're drifting, you know? They're drifting in the story. They need to be proactive at this point, um, and they need to be making decisions about what they're going to do. Another hack that I like um, is actually from, um, again, I don't know where this comes from, uh, what we use the phrase, the active question which I, I, th I find this very useful. The active question of this masterclass, I think, is you are hoping that you can learn something about writing from this masterclass. Uh, you know, hopefully, I can keep you interested enough that you're going, I'm going I'm to stick with this guy. I'm going to stick with this guy, uh, at least till the break. But um, that's the active question. In a story, when, you, when your story's in trouble, uh, you know, ask yourself, what's the active question? What are the audience caring about? Because... Sometimes you kind of go, I don't know, because we've answered all the questions or they're way ahead of what we're trying to do or whatever it is. So the active question, and, and it can mean like a, the big active question, you know, can be a who done it. Who done it? That's the active question of a who done it. You know, uh, there's all sorts of different examples of that. I think in, uh, if you pluck one out of the sky in Toy Story, it's, you know, will they get Buzz back safely or whatever? But there's another active question there, which is when will Buzz realize that he's a... Uh, you know, at a certain point in the story, where he, is he going to realize that he's the toy? And, and th there's those kind of active questions. There can be more than one, but there needs to be at least one. Otherwise, you're not going to be interested. Uh, another hack that um, I like is from a friend of mine called Steve Box, who co-directed um, Wallace and Gromit. And he used to say, you know, at the end of the day, you know, when there's no one listening and it's just, uh, you know, us. We don't have to look, look clever. It's like your character goes from selfish to selfless. And that often happens in feature animation when you think about it. It's about a character who kind of starts off in a way immature uh, in the wrong place. You know, it's a rite of passage story about how they become selfless at the end. So even that sounds, again, very reductive. I do sometimes find that useful. Um, a couple of other ones, um, which I love. Judd Apatow, not in animation, but he is a comedy producer. And he says, if you don't know what your characters should do at some point in a story, Ask what they would do. That's a really useful little tip, that. So you're stuck in the middle of a story. You're going, oh, Christ. And what are we going mean, to... They're stuck in this thing. They're in the temple. How do we get them out? Blah, blah, blah. What would they do? Never mind what they need to do. So that's always a good question to ask when you're stuck. And the final hack I'm going to give you is from the Cohen brothers, uh, who can, tend to be kind of fairly, you know, as you can imagine, fairly laid back about structure and all that. Uh, and they say, we like to ask each other, what happens next? Um, which I know that sounds kind of facetious, but it's, it's, not, it's quite useful. Because sometimes I'm just sitting in a room with people, you know, when it's, when it's just you and the story and you've got to get a deadline or whatever, uh, and you're going, we're completely blocked, we're in development hell, what happens next? That's where you kind of go. So, useful little hacks for you there. Um, okay, finally you've got your first draft done. The first, sorry, the first draft, not your first draft, because your first draft will be shit. It's what we call the bad version, or the vomit draft is sometimes what it's called. For, partly because it comes out quickly, that's a theory, but also because it is, it's gonna be horrible. But that's okay, you've done it, you work on it, you work on it, you make it better, you get it to a point where you think you can hand it in, where other human beings can see it. Um, and that's the first draft uh, as it's handed in. And that's a very important draft. That's your selling draft. So. I always think about that first draft as like a, it, that it's actually a work of art in itself. Well, there's that phrase, isn't there, which is it's not a work of art, it's, a, it's an invitation to a work of art. But I actually think a first draft needs to be a great read, a, t a page turner. 
And when you read a really good script, uh, you just turn in a page on it, you know. And that means don't get bogged down in clever description. Don't try and you know. Don't try and direct the movie. Don't you know? You you want it to be a you want it to be something which is a pleasure for someone who's probably read eight scripts already. Uh, that day, they start reading it, they get sucked into the story, they, put, they turn the page. That's your first draft. I'll tell you why. Because you're not trying to make the movie yet. You want them to at least let you make the movie. And that's why it's important to have that um, that way. Um, now, obviously, after you get through the first draft and you get notes back, you start to get moved towards um, different kinds of drafts. Uh, and eventually, you'll become to a production draft, if you're lucky enough, and the film is green light, that's more of a technical document. Now you're trying to control what's on screen. So yeah, maybe in that document, you might put more detail and stuff like that. But certainly I would recommend that for the first draft, it should be a, a beautiful read. That's the idea. Okay, Chairman Mao, not known for, um, for his screenwriting skills, I have to say. But um, I hijacked that phrase, permanent revolution. Because people are always asking me, how many drafts do you do? How many drafts do you do before a film gets made? And I say, I don't know, I don't count them. I do endless drafts, endless drafts. If I'm in a production with a movie, obviously there's contractual drafts to a certain point, as we discussed, the draft and the set, which is a standard Hollywood deal. But in terms of a uh, like an Ardman, if a film is in production, I will just be constantly working on the script, revising, updating, trying to add jokes in, trying to cut things in a controlled way, reacting to what's going on uh, with the production process. And I call that permanent revolution because it's, the script is never really uh, still. It's always developing. Um, and I think you'll find that about a lot, of, a lot of scripts. And obviously, it's a very important time. It's a very potentially destructive time, as the permanent revolution was. It's very destructive, potentially, because you can lose touch with um, what the film is trying to do, the, the template we talked about, the, the kind of global, the sen and that's your job as a, a screenwriter later on in the process, you're master of the tone, you're guardian of the global story. Uh, you're making sure that what people are worrying about details, you know, um, you can actually, um, you know, you're keeping an overview of the whole thing. So um, now the only thing about that phrase, permanent revolution, was I used to use it quite a lot. Uh, and my co-director, Richard Starzak, started using it, Permanent Revolution, which was fine. But then we got invited to a banquet in China when we were over there on a publicity tour. And they said to him, oh, tell us about your writing process. And he said, well, it's Permanent Revolution. And uh, I can tell you there was quite a freezing, icy uh, atmosphere in that room when he said that. So, um, so um, yeah, so I've talked a little bit about um, some, of the, some of the things that you end up doing um, when you're in production. Um, you know, there's a whole host of activities going on. Uh, there's design and build and all sorts of stuff happening. You know, directors, uh, everyone's giving you notes, everyone. Um, you're having to work very fast and very hard. What then happens often if you're a writer is uh, uh, in the studio system is that you end up um, being very specific about the task later on in the process. So one of the things we do is a punch up. I mentioned that phrase. It's quite a useful thing to do. So you've got your script. Uh, it's pretty well organized. Um, it's not maybe not funny enough. People are always, the one note you get over and over again from the studio is, can it be funnier? Can it be funnier? So you're constantly trying to put more gags in and uh, maybe more visual ideas. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of activity going on around you. And as I just said, you, you, the screenwriter has got to be a kind of rock in that process to try and make sure the film doesn't 
get carried away because it's very easy for the film to get lost in that process um, because of all the different activities that are happening, all the pressures on the director. The director's worrying about, you know, I remember a friend of mine, uh, he directed a, a, um, a DreamWorks movie called Over the Hedge. And uh, it was his first directing job. I think he was a writer, screenwriter, and he walked into a meeting, and they were all sitting there looking actually at a picture of a hedge. Uh, it was like a CG. And they, they sat there for about 15 minutes looking at this, and he said, um, he plucked up courage and said, uh, sorry, what are we doing? And they said, oh, it's to do with the size of the leaves. Whether we have this size, or this size, or maybe this size. So. Kerry was thinking the whole third act doesn't work. But, okay, we'll go for that size, that's fine. So that's kind of part of the thing. If you know, you need the detail, someone's job's got to do that, it's important, but you know, you've got to be in control of the big picture. So um, you get towards the end of the production process, uh, the film is starting to be made at Arb, and this can be anything from, you know, two to four years. Um, Shaun the Sheet One was about two years, and that's the stop frame equivalent of an adrenaline rush, to be honest with you, that was very fast. But as you get towards the back end of the process, I've talked a lot about the bad side, the development hell, you know, pulling your hair out, trying to write, all that stuff. Then, then there's the good stuff, when you see things start to come to life on the screen. I'd like to show you something now, which is only a little thing, but I hope you enjoy it. Um, so it's Nick Park, the great Nick Park. Uh, we have a processor album which we call Laving, which is live action video, which is where um, we will actually go and act, I don't know if you, maybe you do this as well, animators here, uh, you act out the shot uh, to see how it works, timing and so on. Uh, and then you will, the stop frame animators will block it and then they'll shoot it. So here's an example of that process in action, hopefully. That's right, uh, Nick Park got to massage Tom Hiddleston. So, uh, so yeah, that's an example of the process uh, at Arden, Um Trying to make sure that, you know, trying to find the comedy in these, in these moments. Um, so I'm just gonna uh, just sort of wrap up this first half by talking about, um, I'm looking at the time now. Um, yeah, but I, just, I wanna talk about um, a few things, just uh, about the skill set of a writer. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is um, what you might call a toolbox. A toolbox. It's a slightly odd phrase, I know, but it's quite interesting to think about it, which is um, when you approach a story, uh, you have you know, in your armory certain things that you can do well and certain things maybe you can't do well. So obviously the more things you can do well, the more, you can bring the more skill set you can bring to your writing. So um, to give an example, uh, like when we were working on Madagascar, uh, they brought in a, new, a Seinfeld writer to work on the dialogue because they wanted that New York dialogue, um, which was fine. My co-writer was very upset because he is from New York. <laughs> it was a bit offensive to him. But um, similarly, you know, uh, on say something like, um, let's talk about say Frozen, you know, you had Jennifer Lee who co-wrote and co-directed that, and she came in and she had a sibling relationship as well that she had. And also she obviously was very good at writing those very profound female characters. Um, but they can be like, uh, it doesn't have to be like to do with gender or anything. It can be or, to, or, or region. It can be to do with you're good at world building. You're good at writing gags. You're good at set pieces. 
Do you know what a set piece is, by the way? Do you understand that concept of like a set piece is like a, a piece of business in a feature animation, uh, which kind of, you know, uh, it tells a story, but it's almost like a musical number, but it's a, an action sequence or a comedy sequence, and it has its own integrity, a set piece. So you're good at doing set pieces. So to give you an example from my own experience, so I had a, uh, I won't bore you with a full length detail, but I um, started out writing on comics, uh, writing scripts for comics, and then I did, uh, worked on radio, writing for a sketch show, topical sketch show, and then I started writing one-liners, like one-liners, like jokes, uh, and I wrote for comedians, and I wrote a sitcom, and all those things I did, when I came to work in animation, I took with me. That was my toolbox, that I could sit down and go, okay, well, I think I, can, I know how to write jokes, uh, and I know a bit about comedy and so on. Um, I mean, no one really knows about comedy, but as much as you can. Uh, so you should start thinking about your toolbox in terms of what can you do. I mean, part of the thing about it is, uh, apart from just writing, is, you know, what the different kinds of work. Don't, don't shy away from, from other kinds of work. I, I uh, have a fairly sort of Catholic view of the kind of work that I'll do. Um, less so now, just because I'm so old and lazy. But, um, you know, I think it's sometimes good to try different things uh, and to sort of experiment and to, to bring new ideas into your writing. So that's the toolbox. I want to talk about um, pitching. Pitching is a really important part of storytelling and writing, I think. It's uh, very underrated. Uh, now, in America, um, it's a quite a formal process. I don't know if any of you have ever pitched in America. I went over there and I pitched a few things in America, and you'll maybe do three or four meetings a day, and you, you know, you'll, it's very formalized. You'll go in there and they give you a water, and you sit down and you make some small talk about the latest Apple iPhone or whatever, and then you pitch out your story. And if you do it well, they might buy it. It gives you hundreds of thousands of dollars, particularly in the old days. If you do it badly, um, they won't. So there's always a, a danger when you're pitching to, uh, to do it badly by you know, too much detail, for example, so you swamp the other person with detail, or not enough detail, so it's just the bare bones, it feels very dry. It's interesting because we're all natural storytellers as human beings, that's what I love about stories. It's such a universal human experience. You go to the pub with your mates, and you'll say like this, you'll go, um, oh, guess what happened to me on holiday? So anyway, so I was staying in this hotel, right, and they're all leaning in, they're already interested. What you don't do is you don't go, I packed my case, then I went down to the airport, then I got on a plane, and, and that's what people will do when they're pitching. It's like, tell a story. Uh, and when you pitch out your story, what happens is, you know, it's interesting, uh, when you're telling it, if it doesn't feel right, that's a good sign, maybe something's wrong with the story, not the pitch. When people zone out or get bored, that's another good sign. Like, okay, well, maybe that bit's not as good as I thought it was. Um, and the way to approach a pitch for a feature animation, which is probably, you know, where you can sit down and you can go through it maybe 5, 10, 15 minutes max. You know, going back to what I was saying about the four walls and the roof, that 12-point structure, that, you know, act one, act two, act three, the midpoint, you can hit those moments in 10 or 15 minutes. You can kind of give somebody the idea of what the film could be. You're just trying to, again, you're trying to sell them, sell them on the idea. So work on your pitching. That's uh, um, my advice. Um, specs. Um, 
question number one I get from uh, people is, how do I get into the writing business? Some of you here are in the writing business. Everyone's got their own story. Some of you want to get in the writing business. So you should hassle the ones that are already in the writing business uh, when we go and have coffee in a minute. Um, but, you know, in America they have this, again, this very formal system called the, uh, the spec, the speculative script. And people often um, will write a script of an existing show um, to represent their writing, show they've got craft and so on. Um, I don't think we have that so much in Europe, uh, in the UK. But what I will say is this is that uh, your writing portfolio is uh, crucial in that there's only one key to the kingdom, and that is your writing. No one cares about you know, whether you've got a degree or what courses you've done. They're all useful in terms of learning the craft, but no one's going to look at your CV and go, oh, well, you can have a job because you've got a degree uh, in screenwriting or whatever. Uh, no one's going to care if your mother is um, managing director of Canal Plue. It doesn't matter only care about your writing, that's all that matters, that's your calling card, that's your key to the kingdom. So make sure whatever writing samples you get together the best they can be. And, you know, um, and by the way, I was talking earlier about collaboration. Form your own brains trust, particularly those of you that are starting out. You know, find people that are also maybe starting out that can, not just your mum, because they'll always, you know, oh, it's always say how wonderful you are. But constructive criticism from friends, people that, were, that you can help each other, uh, you can collaborate with each other to make your ideas and your writing as strong as it can be. Um, you know, a lot of the British writers will have come through. Um, animation writers tend to come often from animation side. Um, or uh, the drama writers often written plays that have been in theatres. Uh, or they have done, I, for example, with me, I did work with comedians, as I said, stand-up comedy and so on. That can get you as well into uh, writing more um, you know, structured things. So, so your spec, your portfolio, your sample of writing is very important and um, you know you should make sure it's as good as it can be. So uh, what can I say? Um, yeah, I'll just say one thing actually about, about rejection. Uh, part of being a writer is rejection. You've got to deal with it so you can't get bitter about it. Um, well you can eventually but but you, try, you must try not to be bitter about reje rejection. You must, I always say that, you know, um, people often when they criticize your writing, they're seeing a problem. Uh, they won't have the solution. You find the solution, that's the key. But they, can, they will see the problem. Don't just ignore it. It's so tempting. Oh, you don't know what you're talking about, leave me alone. It's such a tempting, you know, place to be uh, in terms of our emotional well-being. Um, so you mustn't get, um, you mustn't let yourself uh, get bitter or to be, you know, broken by rejection. It's part of the process. Even at my level, everyone still spends most days telling me how shit I am. That is basically what happens. The only difference is I get paid to be told how shit I am. So, uh, and I think, I'll give you a couple of examples. Jules Verne wrote, uh, you know, Around the World in 80 Days, sent it off to loads and loads of different publishers. No one would buy it, no one was interested. He got so upset, he threw it in the fire. And his wife, she took it out, gave him a slap. Man up, keep trying. He went to the next publisher, they bought it, it became around the world in 80 days. I'll leave you with this thought, which is that um, Harry Potter was turned down by some publishers. Ouch, I bet they uh, keep their heads down now. So, I think I want to wrap up this first session by talking about um, 
the, the, the highs of being a writer and particularly being a feature animation writer. Because you're living in these worlds you could, you, you, where you can, boundless imagination, you can, you know, you're, you're very liberated in a way, particularly early on, to create these worlds and, and, and uh, uh, explore your creativity. Um, I love storytelling. I love storytelling. You know, I've done directing, I've done uh, writing other things, um, theatre, films, any of it, books, I don't care. I just love to hear good stories. Uh, it's a great thing to do. Um, I'm glad that you're all doing it. I hope you do really well, as long as it doesn't take from what I'm doing, start taking my jobs. But um, no, I hope you do, do really well with your stories. Um, you know, but it's a great responsibility. So you, know, you, should, you should never always take it very seriously. Whatever you're doing, do the absolute best you can, because um, you know, telling a good story is, is, a, is a really great thing. And those stories will survive, and they will carry on. So. Um, I'm going to uh, let you have some coffee now. Thank you for listening so patiently. Um, I want to leave you with something. Uh, this is a, a cliffhanger. When I go to Hollywood, um, they, they say weird shit in Hollywood. <laughs> Excuse my language, but they do. They kind of like, um, they say all sorts of things. So these are the kind of things that they say. I want you to imagine what they might be about. That's going to be your task over the break. Um, and then when we come back, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you a long extract from Shaun the Sheep movie, uh, which is a movie that I co-wrote and co-directed with Richard Starzak. Uh, and then when we've watched that, so hopefully you can relax and watch that, we're going to talk in more detail about the writing process behind that film. And you know, hopefully we can, we, you can get involved and we can talk about it together. So thank you very much. Enjoy your break.